Bibles and stick with the book of 2 Kings chapter 22. And we're going to read just one of those verses, and it happens to be one that Brother Lee liked. So we're going to reread verse number 8. We'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll look into God's word again together today. This verse says, And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this day. We do thank you for the beautiful sunshine that's out and about now that does, in fact, cheer our spirits. And whatever you may have for us in the balance of this day or the early evening or even into tomorrow, we trust you with that. Just pray you would give us uh, good common sense ourselves as well as watch care for those things that we don't see. Sometimes we take a great deal of comfort in the fact that the Bible tells us that he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways, lest thou at any time dash thy foot against a stone. And thank you, Father, that so often you're out before us. You see the dangers. You can uh, turn us aside from them. And I just pray, Father, that as we continue on in some of this challenging weather here this winter, that you will continue to bless us, keep us safe from harm. And Father, I pray you'll bless our service now today. Uh, all the more we want to buy up this opportunity to worship, to listen for what you may have for us, to uh, allow our hearts to the best of our ability to be open to your word and to ask you to help by the power of your spirit that uh, distractions, all the many things that we could be thinking about that we may need to attend to later today or in this new week, but it doesn't really help us now to be uh, distracted by those things. More so, it may help us to concentrate on your word and see how you may give us wisdom and guidance. But however uh, it comes to us today, Father, we know that you know who we are, you know where we are, and you know what we need. And so we trust you that you will take something in the message today, use it in hearts and lives to be an encouragement. Lord, if we have anybody here that doesn't know Christ as personal Savior, we depend as always on the power of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit to take the word into hearts, to meet the needs that are there to call men and women and boys and girls to yourself. And for God's people, Lord, who are here today, just to nourish us up in the words of sound doctrine, help us to love you more as a result of uh, our time spent together, and give us those things that we need for the week. We just thank you now. We'll give you the credit and the praise for all that you do. In Jesus' wonderful and holy name, amen. Well, last Sunday morning, you recall, I took the opportunity to preach on a subject that's difficult, especially when you have to preach the message that I did last Sunday. It was entitled Innocent Blood and Call the, Our Attention to the Fact that Really, uh, when you look back at the days of Israel and you look back at the, in, all the innocent blood that was shed in the days of Manasseh, and it basically got to the point where God basically said, look, the die is cast. This is not something I'm going to pardon. Judgment is coming. That's kind of a tough thing, especially when you, uh, you make the identification with abortion and you make the identification with America. Let me just refresh your memory on this. Go back to chapter 21 and verse number 16, because uh, last time we were thinking primarily about Manasseh, and uh, we're going to continue on this week, but not with Manasseh. I want to build on this, and I'll tell you what my burden is in a moment. But we'll just sort of get that back in mind. Uh, chapter 21, verse 16 says, Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much, till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, beside his sin wherewith he made Judah to sin, in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. So in all that great catalog of wickednesses and sins that this man who was the Ahab of the south, so to speak, uh, was guilty of, it calls this particular sin out, the sin of innocent blood. And then we find uh, the, real, the real haymaker over in chapter 24, 
um, where we realize that this is something that God was not going to take lightly. And it tells us this in verse 3 and 4. Surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he did. And here it again, it's called out. And also for the innocent blood that he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. Well, of course, last week, um, in the light of Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, which we were actually a couple of <laughs> Sundays late on, but always good to do this. You make the application here to innocent blood. may not be the only way that innocent blood can be shed. may not be the only way that Manasseh, but we do know when we read that account that, that he was guilty of shedding innocent blood in terms of child sacrifice. And I wonder if we're really that far off in the application that we made uh, to America today in terms of child sacrifice. Aren't we sacrificing children on the altar of the expedient? Isn't that really what we're doing? And uh, it's a horrible thing to have to contemplate the application of this. And yet, in the message last week, we talked about there being hope for a reprieve because ultimately God did get Manasseh's attention. Remember, Manasseh ended up getting taken off, and God got his attention through uh, his captors, and he repented, he turned back to the Lord, and God raised up in the uh, person of his grandson, not his son, who was an evil king, and lasted only two years, God mercifully took him away, but then raised up in the person of his grandson, the man that we're going to be looking at today in chapter 22 and following, uh, a man by the name of Josiah. We're introduced to him in chapter 22 and verse 1. He comes to the throne at an early age, eight years old, the Bible tells us, and God gives him 31 years, and you can sort of maybe see ahead in the story and think, well, boy, at 39, that's kind of young still, that's really young, as I was saying last week. But uh, nevertheless, God had, this is, this is really what we're seeing. God had determined he was going to bring judgment on the land. He promised Josiah that because of uh, Josiah, Josiah's tenderness of heart and the revival that took place under his time, that he would not bring it upon him during his days. But he was determined to do it. The die was cast, as I said. Well, I got burdened about this this week and got to thinking more and more about this idea, well, if reprieve is possible, because that's what we talked about last week. We saw that reprieve is possible. It may not be possible to divert the hand of God's judgment coming upon Judah or upon America, but reprieve is always possible, although we don't necessarily have God's calendar book and know exactly what God has scheduled. But we know that this is a possibility, and I, I got burdened about that thing and thinking more and more and more this week is there anything we can learn about this revival that took place under Josiah? Is there something that we could be instructed from that? Is there something that would give us a clue? How did this great revival come about that was the reprieve that God gave, as I say, in the person and through the reign of this uh, uh, Josiah, who was uh, Manasseh's grandson? And uh, as we continue applying the story, of course, to our own day and thinking about, well, if should a revival or reprieve, however, whichever term that we want to use, come to America? Is there something to learn about? Was there any factor? Was there any one thing? Was there anything that really we can find from the story, rather than just sort of guessing around, uh, that would give us some insight into how it was that this revival really came about? Was there any particular catalyst? And I think the answer to that is yes, when we read the story of Josiah's reign. Now, you have two opportunities to learn uh, about Josiah, if you would like. 
Our account here in 2 Kings chapter 22 begins in verse number 1, runs down through chapter 23 and verse 30. Not quite the entire chapter of chapter 23. So from chapter 22 verse 1 down to chapter 22 verse 30. But in the Chronicles, so if you, if you want, we're going to turn over in a moment and just consult one time from that. But if you want the parallel account or the complementary account and want to do a little bit more reading on this uh, sometime, maybe even uh, this afternoon, since we don't have church tonight, 2 Chronicles 34 and 35. And it's always wise, just as, just as when you're reading in the, in the Gospels, if you have an account in Matthew, but you have an account in, Ma in Mark and Luke, or an account in John, it's always wise to read those parallel accounts, because sometimes the Holy Spirit seems fit to give us a detail in one that we don't have in another, and we put these things together, and we get a fuller picture of what's really going on. So that can be very, very helpful. There is a particular reference that we want to see over there in just a few moments. But now if there is this catalyst, if there is this one thing, if there's something that we can draw out of this story and learn that might guide us, that might instruct us into how God works and how it might be possible for reprieve to come to America, or if there would be reprieve, what would most likely lead to it? Well, I think we find it in this text in verse number 8, and I've entitled the message this morning, Rediscovering the Bible. Let's look at that verse again. And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of God. Rediscovering the Bible. We're going to find in the message, and I think we can document this as we look at the text, that that is the one thing that everything else flowed from. And that's a, that's a very instructive thought. First of all, let's look at the rediscovery of God's word, which we do find described for us in verse number 8. Although Josiah began his reign at a very young age, the age of eight, we find that detail, verse number one, as I called out a moment ago, it was actually when he was 16, eight years later, that he began to seek the Lord. Now, this is totally free, but I want to point this out to you. You know, in years and years of ministry, and especially in, uh, with a, a church that had a Christian school ministry, one thing that we observe time and time again, 16 is a very crucial age in the life of a young person. Usually you're around 10th grade when you're 16, somewhere right in there. And I can't tell you how many times we made this observation. This is, this is when they begin to decide, particularly when they're raised in a Christian home, particularly when they've had the benefit of Sunday school, church, uh, a Christian home, maybe a Christian school, somewhere around in there becomes a very critical life in the, a, a very critical time in the life of a teenager. And it proved to be that way in the life of Josiah as well. It was then that he began to seek the Lord. Let's look at this because I'm not making it up. Second Chronicles 34, as I say, I'm not going to be having you turn over here a lot, although if you're worried and want to mark the place, you're just over a couple of books, okay? So you'll run into Chronicles pretty quickly. But you could mark this with something if you wanted, but we're not going to be just going back and forth, back and forth. What's interesting is verse number 3 and 4, for in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young. So, so by the way, this is not telling us that he began to reign at eight years of age. That's told us in verse 1 of chapter 34. This is telling us in the eighth year of his reign, which would make him 16 years old, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David. So his heart is tender. He, began seek, he begins to seek the Lord 
at, a, at this age, around, verse, or around uh, the age of 16. Then it says, in, in the 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. So this is rather interesting. This shows us that at this very important time in his life, when he was 16 years old, which would have been in the eighth year of his reign, Try to keep that in mind because we're going to be looking at something that happens in the 18th year of his reign in just a few moments. But that's later yet. So there are some interesting timelines in this. Okay, 8th year of his reign, he's 16, he begins to seek the Lord. 12th year of his reign, he's 20 years old, so add four more years. He's 20 years old. He begins to, after beginning to seek the Lord four years earlier, he begins to implement some of these... We could call it reform, if you will. He begins to call the nation back to God might be a better way to put this. However, there is a catalyst for the incredible things that take place in his 18th year. Now, it might surprise you to hear this, but really, when you read this whole summary, whether you read it in Chronicles or whether you read it in Kings, all of these things that it describes him doing, not, not maybe the things that took place when he first began his reforms in his, when he was 20 years old, but all of the incredible things that are described in chapter 22 and on into chapter uh, 23 in, second, in the second Kings account, all of these things actually seem to have taken place in the 18th year of his reign. And I'm going to show you that in just a few moments, but I'd like to summarize for you what exactly these things were, and we don't have time to read all of the verses. But first of all, calling the people back to God. If you look in chapter 23, verses 1 through 3, the king sent, and they gathered unto him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, so forth and so on. And he read in their ears, a little bit later in verse 2, the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and all their soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people stood to the covenant. So this is one great component, but you couldn't have had this happen until they rediscover the Bible. Because that's what they're reading in the presence of the people. That's what it is that leads Josiah himself to uh, take the urgency of this in the manner that he does. So that's one component of it. The purging of the temple and the land of all, all of the evils. And you can read about that beginning in verse number 4. We'll just get a sampling of this. It goes down through verse 20, so it's a bit too long to read everything. But And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the door to bring forth out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal and for the grove and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them without Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried the ashes of them unto Bethel. That's a really significant point. He carried the ashes to Bethel because Bethel was one of the two places that Jeroboam, when he led the northern kingdom into apostasy, erected those golden calf idols in Bethel and in Dan. Remember the story, how he was afraid that people would eventually go back to uh, Rehoboam and they would eventually be drawn back to the temple. And so that's one of the two places. He goes there and, and, and there's a whole different thing that we could get into and won't for sake of time. But he goes there, he's 300 years or so after this prophecy takes place. But do you remember the story in 1 Kings chapter 13 
about the man of God that was sent north to call out Jeroboam for what he was doing. Jeroboam put forth his hand because he didn't like the preaching of the man of God who had come, and his, it just, like his, hand, his arm froze. Remember that story? And he makes a prophecy in that place that, that that place is going to be defiled, that altar is going to be defiled, it's, and names Josiah. It's more than 300 years later when that happens. Don't tell me that God doesn't know what he put in his book and doesn't intend to fulfill it to the letter. Calls out the man's name and it's some 300 years later. This is what all of this is a reference to. That's the second great component. And as I say, we won't read all of the verses, but then you have what I've described here as an unparalleled Passover, beginning in verse 21 of chapter uh, 23. Take a look there. We'll, we'll, we'll go down to that now and skip over all the things that it talks about that he did to, to purge the wickedness um, after calling the people back to God. This Passover that took place, verse 21, And the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover unto the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant, Surely there was not holding such a Passover from the days of Judea, uh, in the days of the judges that judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, wherein this Passover was holding in the Lord, uh, to the Lord in Jerusalem. Do you see how we sort of have bookends here? We're getting to the end of chapter 23, and it says this, dynamic, this incredible, this unparalleled Passover. You can read details about it. We're skipping all those. But it was held in the 18th year. Then we come back into chapter 22, and what do we discover in verse number 18? It's in the 18th year that Hilkiah the high priest, in the course of carrying out all of these uh, reforms in the temple and, and bringing out all of the evil and the corruption that had been placed in there, the, the altars to Baal and all of the way in which the thing had been left and fallen into disrepair, that Hilkiah, who is the high priest, is the one who rediscovers the book of the law. So chapter 22, verse 3, And it came to pass in the 18th year of the reign of Josiah that the king sent Shaphan, the son of Asaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord. There's our bookend the 18th year. In the process of this, this book of the law is discovered. As a result of this, all of these things happen that are described to us in this incredible revival that takes place under Josiah until finally it ends with the account and tells us once again, this is in the 18th year that all of this was brought to a climax with this amazing Passover. Let's stop for a moment. Get a breather. Rediscovering the Bible. That's really a sad thought when you think about it. That they would have fallen into such a state of sinfulness. This covenant people, this people who had been entrusted, as Paul tells us, in Romans chapter 2 with the oracles of God. Paul asks that question. Do you ever think about that? What, what advantage then is it to be a Jew? Much in every way, chiefly because unto them was committed the oracles of God. They had the word of God committed to them. They were its gatekeepers. They, it was committed to them not only to, to, to read, to learn, to know uh, for their own uh, guidance so that they might be blessed as the people of God, but also that they might share that with other peoples. And 
yet somehow the land had gotten so far away from God, the nation had gotten so far away from God that they had actually lost it. And it had to be rediscovered. Well, I don't see too much different than where we are right now in America. I mean, it's a sad thing, really, when you think about it, that there are so many nice people, good people, in the human sense of the word, and they go to churches all across the land, although, unfortunately, we're waning more and more in the amount of people who attend church. But ask yourself this question. Thank God we still have some of this in America. But ask yourself, into how many of those old-line denominational and other churches do people go today and find the preaching of God's word and the reading and teaching and preaching of God's word. That's what God tells us to do, you know. That's what we're there for. And I can only think back to my own experience, and I, of course, know over years of ministry and, and hearing the testimonies of so many different people over time that I know that this is true. The Bible's been replaced largely in these places. We don't talk about the Bible today. We don't preach the Bible today except where we find something convenient in it that sounds good, that we can sort of hang our idea of what we should be there in church. We talk about feeding the poor. That's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. We talk about all kinds of things. We talk about racial equality. Well, you know, racial inequality isn't good either. But we talk about all these social justice things, and, and, and it's not that those things don't merit some consideration, but I guess my theory on it is this. If you're going to talk about those things, talk about them in the light of God's word. Don't substitute God's word for them. Because any subject that you need to teach people about and any subject that people need to hear about, you can find it in this book. If you're a student of it, you certainly can do that. And it's really sad that, you, that we would have to make that analogy in America today. I, I've told you before about my own experience. I mean, I grew up in a denominational church, and I can tell you that this was true. Um, I was reading something recently about a state here in the Northeast where it was talking about an old line church that had been the first church, actually there, the first Catholic church in this particular place. I can't remember, actually, it may have been Virginia instead of the Northeast. But at any rate, it was the first Catholic church, and the date on it was 1780-something, and I thought, man, that's, we had more history than that where I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, because the church that we grew up in there was the first Scots Presbyterian church, and it would tell you right on the outside, founded 1731. And I can imagine the day in which that church preached the Bible. It was really something, you know, I mean, I can remember all of those things, and you'd be surprised how much you really remember about those years in church, but I can remember we, we would go to Sunday school, and we had the catechism, and we learned that, you know, there's a lot of good things in the catechism. If somebody would only teach you what it's talking about and apply it to your heart and life, there's some amazing things in that catechism. And you might find the Sunday school class here or the Sunday school class there where you had somebody who still believed those things and made an effort to teach them. That's how my mother, the first person in my immediate family who came to Jesus Christ, that's how it happened. That there was an older woman in that church that was a, a true believer. And uh, somehow her and my mom got to be friends, and I don't know whether she had any kind of a Bible study or whatever, but I think I actually still have the Bible that woman gave to my mother. And we were kids. We didn't really know much about all this stuff about changed lives and the, and the power of God's word and the preaching of God's word. But I can tell you, I can remember a change in my mother. And that, that set the whole thing off in our family until eventually we got to the place where everyone was saved. My brother and I are both preachers. 
The only one that we really don't know about is our oldest sister, and we just don't know. We just don't know about that. But I can tell you one thing, God's word and its power radically transformed our family once we got a hold of it, or maybe I should say more accurately, once it got a hold of us. Once somebody exposed it to us, because we, we grew up in that church, and you'd hear something decent on Sunday morning, really. I mean, you'd hear a good moral type thing. I, I used to kind of later, when I kind of learned some of the vocabulary and learned how to describe it, I would tell you it was a good moral homily. Um, I mean, they would stand up there and say things, but you'd never hear the gospel. Never. You'd never hear the gospel preached from the pulpit. That, to me, is really sad. Never hear the gospel preached from the, the pulpit. And uh, I just think our people are, there's, a, there's coming a day, God says, when there's going to be a famine in the land. Not a famine for bread, but a famine for the words of God. We're here. We're there. That's what's going on. The Bible needs to be rediscovered. What does that lead to? Well, the next thing, it, it, I'm, sh I'm showing you, this is really the fountainhead. All of this comes out of that. Next, it led to repentance. Notice chapter 22, verse 11. And it came to pass when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he rent his clothes. Wow. I mean, when Jonah finally got busy and got to Nineveh, what happened? That's exactly what happened. The king of Nineveh decided, I'm putting my clothes here aside. They all put sackcloth and ashes on and even said, put it on the animals. This is what's going on. Verse number 11, verse number 19, if you drop down to that. Because thine heart was tender, God says to him, and thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord when thou heardest. Haha, <laughs> when thou heardest. Well, he didn't hear until it was rediscovered. When thou heardest what I spoke against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and hast rent thy clothes and wept before me, I also have heard thee, saith the Lord. And it went from there. It was a work that took place, first of all, in the heart of this young king. When the book of the law was rediscovered. Now, have you ever wondered what that was? Because they didn't exactly have the whole Bible like what we have today in that day because it wasn't all written at that point. Almost certainly the parts that are referred to here, and it could have been more that actually was read, but I think you have to almost conclude that the part that really got his attention was what we find in, in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, so the book of the covenant, in other words, Moses' books. But let's turn there for a moment because I want to give you a little sampling of why I say this and what's really there. Because God had a lot to say, and when you start reading about what God has to say, all of a sudden you start realizing the world of hurt you're in. All of a sudden it starts exposing you. All of a sudden it starts revealing you for who you are and what you are and your sinful estate before God. And so, for example, here in chapter 27, where all of this kind of gets started, uh, it, the commandments are given earlier when you get to the land. Verse 12, these shall stand upon Mount Gerizim to bless the people. And when you are come over Jordan, Simeon and Levi, so forth, and then these shall stand upon Mount Ebal to curse, Reuben, Gad, so forth and so on. So half the tribes on one mountain, half the tribes on the other, and they would pronounce these blessings and cursings. Well, you get a sample of this beginning in verse number 15. Cursed be the man that maketh any graven or molten image. Do we need to go much further? That's what this was all about. This was what they had done. They had, had moved completely into idolatry. This is what he was purging from the, 
the, the Kidron Valley. This is what he was purging from Bethel. This is what he was purging from Jerusalem and from the house of the Lord was the, these pagan altars that had been erected there. And you can go on and keep reading all the different things. Cursed, verse 16, be he that setteth light by his father or his mother. And the people had to answer to it. The people shall say amen. You can go on down and keep reading these curses till you get to the end of the chapter. Then you get to the next chapter and the blessings start. Verse 3, blessed shalt thou be in the city and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body and so forth and so on until you come down and the, the curses are enumerated again. Verse 15, but it shall come to pass if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do his commandments, all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. This is what they were reading. This is, they saw, my goodness. No one had been preaching the Bible. They didn't have the Bible. No one had been exposing them to the Bible. And all of a sudden, the book of the law is rediscovered. He, he comes back. They, Shaphan brings this back from Hilkiah, who's the one, he's the high priest, he discovers it. Shaphan comes back, they read this thing to the king, and he tears his clothes. Because we're in a world of hurt. God's judgment is coming upon this place. You know, God often sees fit to use his word in this very, in this very kind of a way, and it's powerful and momentous when it happens in a person's life, and often can happen at the most amazing times. There's a man by the name of J.K. Johnston who wrote a book called Why Christians Sin. In that book, he has a rather interesting story that's told about the conversion of a Russian actor. The man's name was Alexander Rostovzev. Well, here's how the story worked. This man performed in the theater. So many years ago in a Moscow theater, he was performing, and it was meant to be a play that was a sacrilegious takeoff on the life of Christ. The name of the play was called Christ in a Tuxedo. I don't know what all was in it beyond that and don't need to. All I know this was he was in the course of playing this role that he was to play in this sacrilegious play, play about Jesus. He was supposed to read two verses from the Sermon on the Mount and then he was supposed to remove his gown and then cry out, give me my tuxedo and my top hat. I don't know all what was the meaning of all that in the play. Here were the verses and he started to read them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. He read those two verses. He was supposed to stop and do what I just told you. Instead, he began to tremble. Inexplicably, he began to tremble. He didn't know what to do. He didn't do what the script called for him to do. He didn't do what the play called for him to do. He just kept reading. All of a sudden, they're from his fellow actors who were either in the wings or on the stage, ready to, to go on with the, the play. There were all kinds of <coughs> coughing, loud coughing, trying to drown out what he was doing, all kinds of calls, foot stamping to kind of drown out what he was doing. Well, this was a bit unsettling, but the Lord was really working in his heart, and all of a sudden he remembered a verse that he'd heard when he was a kid. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And before the curtain fell, he'd prayed that prayer and trusted Christ as his Savior. You know, I can only imagine how the Holy Spirit might get a hold of somebody who's up there in a role that is blaspheming Christ. But it was the power of God's word that was used in that man's life, first of all, to bring him under that great conviction, and secondly, when that verse 
was brought back to him by the Holy Spirit, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. The thief on the cross, I'm sure you recognize that prayer. He prayed that prayer. God kept his word to that man that day on that cross, and he's been keeping it ever since, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It led to this repentance. And then... This in turn, on the part of Josiah, his conversion, like the man in the play, although he was not a blasphemer at that point, led to him to gather the people, as we read about in the first part of chapter 23, so that they too could hear the word of God. You see how all this flows from the rediscovery of the Bible? This is what causes Josiah to take these dramatic steps that issue in this revival. This is what happens when, the, when he hears the word. He tears his clothes. When the people hear the word, it's what secures, lastly, this recommitment that we read about in verse number three, that he calls the people to join him in these reforms, to commit. And the end of the verse says, and all the people stood to the covenant. In other words, they willingly agreed to enter into the same covenant that the king had entered into to give his heart and his life back to the word of God and what was commanded there to do. That's how he was successful in all these reforms. I mean, they were massive. If you don't Want to, if you want to read this all later, you'll see just how extensive they truly were. He sent priests even through the northern kingdom, which at that point had been conquered, and called the people back to the Lord, and many of them responded. It was a tremendous working of God. It was from this that God did a, work, a great work in the heart of the people. It was that message that got Nineveh's attention when Jonah went there and preached. It was that kind of a message when Jonathan Edwards preached that great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Have you ever read that? Now, maybe this is a little too honest, but I read that sometimes and I think, <laughs> you know. I mean, I know it's a different day and a different age, but it doesn't really seem like anything that much when you just read it on the page. But it was God's word he was preaching, and God was ready to do a work, and somehow God came and visited those people, and those people were so fearful that they were going to fall straight into hell. And I guess what I'm really trying to say is, you know, this is part of it that I think we've missed today. Believe me, I love the song service. I think God's love is a tremendous subject. I love that song, The Love of God. It's one of my favorites to talk about the love of God. But you have to keep everything in balance, and it's appropriate and necessary also to preach God's judgment. That's John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not what? Perish. Well, you know, he that believeth shall be saved, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. You don't really understand how great God's love is. God's love becomes its most appealing when someone exposes you to the world of hurt you're in according to God's word and the Holy Spirit gets a hold of your heart and conviction and you see you could be dangling over the precipice of a burning hell if it weren't for the fact that God loves sinners and offers to save them. That's when it's really the sweetest. Gypsy Smith, people get under conviction. Do you, you ever heard the, the old time uh, preacher Gypsy Smith that preached, one time he was on a preaching tour and had gone to South Africa. And he preached in a service that night. There was a, a Dutchman who was in the service and he got convicted from listening to the, to the message. He got convicted about his sin. The next morning, this man who had been in the service and heard that message went to the home of another 
well-established Dutchman in that town and held up a watch and asked him, he said, do you recognize this watch? And said, I sure do. He said, those are my initials on that watch. He said, I lost it eight years ago. How did you come by it? He said, I stole it. He said, but God got a hold of my heart in that service last night. And he said, had I not known that you were in bed and asleep, he said, I would have brought it to you last night. That's old time, real old-fashioned working of the Holy Spirit. That's real honest-to-goodness, genuine biblical conviction and biblical conversion. Those kinds of things happen when you unleash the power of God's word. You'll always have two components when this kind of a working of God, whether it happens in the life of an individual or whether it happens in the life of a nation. You'll have the negative side, if we want to call it that, in which there is a renunciation of evil. That's what this guy was doing. He realized his, his stealing of the watch was wrong. But you know, it's incomplete if that's all you do. You realize it was wrong and keep the watch. You haven't really made anything right. And so these components are all here. We read about all the crud and all the, they, they, they made these reforms. They got rid of all these, these wickednesses and pagan altars and all this different corruption that was involved in the house of the Lord. Um, chapter 22, uh, and, and we, we read that, that story there. But it can't stop there, not if it's really a genuine working of God. I don't know if you ever heard of... Uh, an author, a Christian author by the name of Patrick Morley. I, I had never heard of him and, and haven't really read so many of his books. Don't know him in that sense. But years ago, um, we were visiting one of our missionaries in Germany. And the pastor there said, have you seen this book? And he held up a book that was written by Patrick Morley. It's called The Man in the Mirror. How many of you have heard of that book? Just curious. Okay, several of you. Uh, I said, no, I know he gave me a copy of the book. Well, anyway, this particular book um, sort of takes its, it leapfrogs off from that analogy of the scripture and a mirror that you have in James chapter 1. So he says, well, if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who beholds his natural face in a glass. That's like looking in the mirror in the morning. And he says, but by and by something distracts him and straightway he forgets what manner of man he was. I don't know if you've ever had that. that it, you have to wait till you get a little older, but the older you get, the more it happens. The more it is that you, what was I going to go in here and do? You know, some of you can chuckle because you know, but uh, it's like a guy gets up in the morning and looks in the mirror and says, wow, hair's all mussed up, needs to comb his hair, hmm, probably ought to shave too, brush my teeth, all that kind of stuff. Need to wash my face, get ready for the day. Phone rings or something, he gets all distracted by that, gets busy with stuff that he's going to do, and all of a sudden, first thing you know, the mailman's come or something else, and you run out to meet the guy. Uh-oh. He's like these, some of these people you run into, I shouldn't say, some of these people you run into at Walmart, it's like they got out of the house early in the morning and showed up in their pajamas. Just forgot to take them off. But in his book, he talks about, in, in the, not in The Man in the Mirror, but in another of his books, he talks about this. He says that the, lack, the problem in the church today, the church's integrity problem, arises from this misconception, one, that we can add Christ to our lives but not subtract sin. It is a change in belief without a change in behavior. 
Then he goes on to say this, it is revival without reformation, without repentance. So you're going to get these two components that first of all you have this renunciation of evil which we read a little bit about and then the positive side where there's a return to righteousness which again you have two bookends. You have the verse that says in chapter 23 verse 3 that they stood to the covenant. They agreed to pledge and live their lives in the light of God's word once again until you get down to the end and they're doing these positive things. Beloved, holiness, true holiness is not just about what you don't do, it's about what you do do as well, equally. And sometimes I think we get that out of kilter and out of balance sometimes, and that's possibly sometimes a turnoff to people. I want to say this to you as we kind of wrap this up today. You know, the Bible may be banished from our public schools, but we still have it. It is still the church, is still the pillar and ground of the truth. You know where that verse is? 1 Timothy chapter 3. I can't take a lot of time to talk to you more about this verse, but I do want to go there and read it to you so that you see where I'm coming from. Paul writes to Timothy. He's talking about how to conduct yourself as a young minister and what your responsibilities are in, re in, regards, to the, in regards to the church. And he says in 1 Timothy chapter 3.15, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of and ground of the truth. What's a pillar? A support beam, right? What's really interesting is to know that this was Ephesus where he was. Did you know that the temple to Diana, great as Diana of the Ephesians, remember that from the book of Acts? Or by her other name, Artemis. Did you know that the temple in Ephesus built to Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world? a humongous structure that was supported by more than 120 huge columns. You go there to that place today and look and there's one. Everything else is gone and destroyed and that one sits out there in a bog. And you think to yourself about, okay, what's more permanent, what's more powerful, and what really changes lives? The work of Paul or these people that shouted, great is Diana of the Ephesians. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Ground is foundation. The church has been entrusted with the Bible. The, trust is, the church has been entrusted with the Bible not only to defend it, but to preach it. The church still has that obligation. The message of the Bible is still living and powerful and capable of changing lives. We're told that repeatedly in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing, that's conviction, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. And even though moms have eyes in the back of their head, it's the Bible that's the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Paul, talking about the power of the Bible to transform lives, and more particularly the gospel message, says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 
Later, he told Timothy, as he continued to talk about what would happen as evil men and seducers would wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, he told him, this you must do. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the living, the quick, the living, and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Doesn't matter if the time comes when men shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Keep preaching the word of God. And the church has been unfaithful to that charge. It's why we're in the trouble that we're in today. Christians, individual Christians, still have an obligation to read it and share it. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. God told Joshua, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Joshua 1.8. The problem that all of this knowledge puts us in is when we get to Romans chapter 10, and have you ever observed the context of all of this great discourse that Paul is saying, we get to this triumphant verse that I quoted earlier, about, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, verse 13, and then it starts to get really convicting. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And you say, oh, I'm off the hook. No, you aren't. Just because we've sort of made the word preacher technical in our day doesn't mean that's what it is. It, it's just Karuks. It's just a herald. It's just somebody who proclaims. This is no more relegated to just preachers any more than the Great Commission was just relegated to the, to the apostles. This is for every one of us. A resurgence of Bible reading and preaching is the key to reprieve and revival for America. And if you believe that, the place to start is with your own personal life. That's where it started with Josiah. Rediscovering the Bible wouldn't hurt for people even in our Christian churches to do that. There's a story. I like it. I like it as well as almost as I like another one, but I don't have time to tell you both. But this particular story is of an old man. He lived in the, the mountains of eastern Kentucky on a farm, and he had his, I don't know whether the boy's dad had passed away or what it was, but his young grandson lived with him. The boy noticed that the dad had, or the grandpa had a habit. He'd be up early in the morning. He'd come in the kitchen. His grandpa would be there uh, sitting and reading kind of an old worn out Bible. The boy made bold one day to say what he was thinking. He said to his grandfather, he said, you know, I like to be like you any way I can. But he says, Papa, I try to read the Bible just like you, but I don't understand it. What I do understand, I forget as soon as I close the book. So what good does reading the Bible do? Papa was pretty wise. He turned away from putting coal in the stove and said to the young boy, he said, I got something I need you to do. Gave him the coal basket. He said, get down to the creek and fill this with water, bring it back. Boy said, okay. So he booked it on down to the creek, filled the basket with water, came back. He got back to his grandpa. There was no water in the basket. It all leaked out. His grandpa said, well, maybe you didn't, maybe you just need to pick the pace up a little bit. Maybe you didn't run fast enough. 
So the boy went down to the creek again, filled the basket with water, came back to the house. He was going faster that time. The result was still the same. He got back to the house, no water in the basket. He was pretty discouraged at this point. Finally, the old man said, I don't want a bucket of water. The boy said, I think you need a bucket, Grandpa. Grandpa said, I don't want a bucket of water. I want a basket of water. He said, you're just not trying hard enough. Get down there one more time and run as fast as you can back here. Fill the basket with water. The boy went down again, filled the basket with water. Top speed back to the house. Still got there. No water in the basket. He said, see, Papa, it's useless. Grandpa said, you think it's useless? Look at the basket. Sure enough, the boy looked down at the basket. As he had known it before, all coal dust, black all over it, he noticed instead the basket was clean. Papa said, son, that's what happens when you read the Bible. You might not understand or remember everything but when you read it, it will change you from the inside out. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are being changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Rediscovering the Bible isn't a bad place even in a Bible-believing church. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would help us as we realize the great precious treasure that we have in the Bible. But as we think about that, 